All right. So this morning um, we're going to focus on family aspects or the aspects aspects of family worship in the New Testament. So the last few weeks we've we've looked at several areas in the Old Testament, looking at some of the aspects that we can glean about family worship. Uh, but this morning we're going to specifically focus on the New Testament. We're going to focus on a few passages. Um, the first passage that we're going to look at, or the first couple, are in Ephesians. So, uh, volunteers, Joe, would you read Ephesians five twenty-two through thirty-three? Ephesians five twenty-two through thirty-three. Yes, sir. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now that the church is Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. <clears throat> he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thank you, Joe. So I want to kind of pick out three main kind of points here from this section of Scripture in regards to family worship. Uh, The first one we'll talk about is a husband's call to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The second one would be a husband's responsibility to assist his wife in her spiritual progress. And then the third thing would be a father's responsibility to do two things, really. To provide a home and raise his children in an environment conducive to the things of God. And to teach his children the things of God. So that first thing, the husband's call to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Or loved the church. A Christian marriage should be completely and utterly different than a non-Christian marriage. It should look totally different. The relationship between a husband and wife positively and negatively affects the culture of the home. It directly affects the family as a whole, including the family worship time. Clearly. In verse 22, it says that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. So a wife's right response to her husband is respectful love. Verse 25, it says, Husbands are to lead their families sacrificially and lovingly. So a husband's right response to his wife is sacrificial love. There is no in Scripture, if you submit to me or if you serve me, I will submit to you or vice versa. There is no dependence clause. This idea of conditional submission or conditional sacrifice that some people have is completely alien and foreign to the Scriptures. So the bulk of this passage that Joe just read, the the focus is on the husbands loving their wives. The, The majority of this passage is that. 
And the reason is Christ didn't just love the church. The focus is that He gave Himself up for her. He gave up life as He knew it for the benefit of His spouse, the church. So based on this truth, we must be willing to die to ourselves to get married, to stay married. We have to think this way. We have to be willing to die to enter into marriage. Because that's what we're called to do. That's what He did for the church. He gave Himself up for her. I've mentioned this many times, but the Christian life and marriage are both a slow, painful death to self. It's this method of continually sacrificing, continually serving those around us, especially in this passage, suggests our spouses. So the true biblical marriage is one of the greatest acts of humility that the believer can do, that he can exercise. So we looked at this husband's call to love his wife as love the church. Now let's talk about this husband's responsibility to assist his wife in her spiritual spiritual progress. Verse 26 says, We are to sanctify her. We are to look for opportunities to give her the word for the moment that she's in. That's our job as husbands. So in order to do that, we must know the Lord and we must know her. Later in the Second Peter passage that we're going to look at, we'll see that it is the believer's responsibility to actively pursue growth in the knowledge of God through the study of His Word. So while we should be doing that, we also must be pursuing a Ph.D. in our spouse so that we can sanctify them by washing them with the Word, is what the verse says. The only way we can do that is by knowing the Lord, knowing His Word, and knowing our spouse. Think about when you go to wash a shirt. What are the two things you must know when you wash a stain from a shirt? You have to know the material, and you have to know the cleaner. Because if you, if you use the wrong cleaner on the, on the wrong material, it could go bad quickly. You could destroy the material, or it could not get the stain out at all. We must be informed both in the Word and in our wives, or else we may say or do the wrong thing, and we could damage or destroy her. So in verse 27, it says, "...so that we can present her holy and blameless to God." Several months ago, Lexi drew a beautiful picture, and she submitted it to the State Fair um, here in Texas. When she did that, she had to choose a frame to go with the picture. It was She just drew the piece of art, but she had to frame it in order to submit it. It couldn't be unframed. So in thinking about the frame, I hadn't really thought about this before, but the wrong frame will really distort the way the picture looks. The right frame will increase the the beauty of the picture. It makes a difference. We are the frames 
to the holy picture of our wives that we present to God as husbands? Are we being a good frame or a bad frame when we present our wives to the Lord? In verse 26, it explains that as we are sanctifying her, we must not push her or force her to be what she ought to be. But instead, in in thinking about how we're leading our families, we must lead from the front in the ways that I sacrifice her and the ways that I serve my wife. I can't force her to be who she is, or who she should be. I need to be the one leading from the front and showing her. So how can I know as a husband I'm doing a good job at this? Let's look at verse 27. How does she look? Does she have spots or wrinkles? Is the picture distorted in in the analogy I just talked about with the picture in the frame? Is she worn out? If so, then as a husband I'm doing something wrong. She's supposed to be spotless and without blemish. I'm the one that's supposed to be washing her and sanctifying her with the Word. So if she doesn't look right, I'm probably doing something wrong as a husband. Verse 28, it explains that as natural as it is to feed and nourish and care for our own bodies, so it's biblically correct to feed, nourish, and care for our wife as husbands. This is in contrast to the world. The world thinks and acts like sacrificing and for and loving something other than yourself is an exercise in insanity. There's an incredible focus on self in the world. Unredeemed people are the center of their own universe. If they do anything nice for someone, it most likely means they're getting some sort of benefit from it. They're doing it for themselves. But we instead must be focused on sacrificing and serving towards others, not ourselves. True love and sacrifice for another, for only that person's benefit, not our own, can only come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in someone. Otherwise, it's, it's selfishness. But even in loving and sacrifice for our spouses in that way, we also will receive benefit from it. We absolutely benefit from building up our spouse. But we have to do it sacrificially. Verse 31 says, For this reason... For what reason? The reason to die. To give himself up for her. To sanctify her. Just like he spent all this this time laying out. For that reason, a man must necessarily leave his father and mother. He must necessarily leave his childhood home and his parents in the pursuit of death and sacrifice for his wife. He can no longer remain at home and die to his, for his wife. So th- verse 32 says, calls this a great mystery. But it's quick to say that it's not talking about marriage. Marriage is not the mystery. Well, sometimes we might feel like it. The mystery is that Christ, to put it in these terms, Christ a perfect ten married us a zero. 
And in that completely lopsided marriage, he gave him up, up himself completely for his spouse, for the church. And if he can do that, verse 33 gives us the encouragement that I can give up myself for my wife. And that my wife can respect me as her sacrificing husband in doing that. Somebody please flip over to Ephesians chapter 6 and read verses 1 through 4. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we looked at Christ's love for the church. We looked at a husband's responsibility to assist his wife in her spiritual progress. And then here we can see a father's responsibility to provide a home and raise his children in an environment conducive to the things of God. So as we've said before several times, while the husband is held accountable, while the husband is primarily responsible for these things being completed, for the raising and rearing of God-honoring children, the wife and the mother is completely and utterly involved in all things. Every aspect of God's assignment of the cultural mandate, as we've been talking about the last several weeks, requires both husband and wife, each with their own unique abilities and qualities. Let's think about Adam. Adam was sinless, and Adam had a perfect relationship with God. He had all things, yet it was not good, Genesis says. He needed his wife. Would somebody read Titus 2, 3 through 5? Titus 2, 3 through 5. So let's shift our focus over to the wife and to the mother in the home for a minute. I'm going to say a few things about that. Um, first off would be that a wife and mother's attitudes and actions completely flavor the home. They give flavor to all that happens in it. And that she must enter into the work of the home and the family with purity and self-control. There are a lot of duties listed here and in other areas of Scripture for the wife. But here, I think the most important thing that he's doing, he's giving us a reason for those duties. Her work of homemaking must be full of joy, otherwise she brings dishonor upon the Word of God. So what is the result if she does not teach what is good? If she does not have good behavior... 
if she does not encourage the young women to love their husbands and children, if she's not self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to her husband. Scripture says very clearly the result is that the word of God is reviled. So I'm thinking of this environment conducive to the teaching of the things of God. What would that include at home? What what does the environment look like? If we're going to say that there needs to be environment, we need to say what's involved. What does that environment look like? First is what we've just been talking about. An ever-growing biblical marriage and relationship. Both husband and spouse and both of them with the Lord. Just what we've been talking about. The second, what we're doing here. Being part of a faithful church. Someone might ask, but how can that help me as a parent being here? Being a part, serving in the local church. Well, for starters, we're going to gain several things. We're going to gain assistance through the preaching of the Word. That's going to help us lead our families. We're going to have the examples of the elders, both as the leaders and as the older folks. All of the people that have raised children, all of the people that have been through all the things that the younger folks are going through, by spending time together, they can train them and help them answer their questions. And just fellowship, just fellowship with our peers, gives us encouragement, gives us accountability. And there's no other model than this in Scripture. Godly relationship between the parents and the Lord and being part of a church, a faithful church. This is how, this is the environment we must raise our children in. Verse 4, it says, it talks about a father's responsibility to teach his children the things of God. So if we expect our children to, to mature in faithfulness, if that's something that we expect as fathers and parents, there is no other choice than to sacrificially invest in their lives. We must do it as parents. This is that active and intentional investment I talked about three weeks ago. If you knew your child was going to war, what would you do? We would actively and intentionally prepare them for that day. That's what we would do. Much of what our children learn from us is from our day-to-day routines in the home. They watch everything we do. They pick up on everything we do, the good and the bad. Usually they exponentially multiply all the bad things we do and they minimally multiply the things that we do well. But it's important for us to continually be putting our sinfulness to death as parents in front of our children and repenting to our children and repenting in front of our children. Our children should see us apologizing and repenting to our spouse when we do something wrong, when we treat them wrongly. They must see our growth in the home. They must see us maturing in our faith. And though they do see all of these things that we do in our day-to-day, our children must also receive purposeful, formal training from us in the form of family worship. Formal training in the scriptures, 
in family worship. As we discussed three weeks ago, they're going into battle. If we expect them to be a great blessing to the expansion of the kingdom, and if we expect them to be great warriors in this battle, we must prepare them. We must train them to fight the evil one. And one of the most influential ways we've been talking about all of these weeks is by, do we can do this, is by the culture of the home that we set. The things that we do in the home. On a daily basis. Do we do things that honor God and His Word at home on a daily basis? Imagine for a moment that God was physically present in our homes every day. He was there with us, standing there. What would your priorities be? Would you do more for the kingdom? Would you eliminate things? Would you eliminate distractions? Newsflash, He is there with us. He indwells His redeemed people. He's right here. He's right now. This afternoon, He'll be there tonight. He'll be there tomorrow in our homes. So what should we do? We've spent a considerable amount of time discussing over these last several weeks the effects that parents can have on their children in the home. But the next two sections I want to look at for just a few moments show us that children also have an incredible impact on their parents. Somebody would read 3 John, verse 4. And if someone else would read 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 through 10. First Thessalonians three, five through ten. So as I said, the third John passage and the Thessalonians passage both affirm the incredible impact children can have on their parents. Of course, the initial context in the third John passage is a relationship between two people. John, who was encouraged by the faithfulness of Gaius, his friend and believer in Christ. But the language is such that we can easily apply this to the parent-child relationship. If a child is faithful, it will be a great joy to the parents. And in the Thessalonians passage, 
Paul's life was really characterized by a lot of severe stress and anxiety. But those difficulties, it says, were eased by the comfort he received when considering the faithfulness of his children in the faith. That comfort can also, too, just like in the third John passage, be felt by parents when considering and observing the faith of their biological children. However, children who rebel against God have a negative impact on their parents, lasting over a lifetime. It can. So I think we should consider these truths when thinking about our family, when thinking about our family culture, and when thinking about family worship. As we've spent the last several months meeting together as men and talking about these things, a man's ability to lead his wife and his family in a God-honoring way, and his wife's and his children's response to that leadership, is one of the very clear qualifications for being an elder and a deacon in the church. If his own children will rebel, how can he properly lead and care for the people in the church with any hope that they won't rebel and turn from God? It's very important that we lead our families well and that our, our children respond well to our leadership. Can somebody look up for me? 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. And read that, please. This divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if those qualities are yours and are increasing, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So earlier I mentioned that the responsibility and the God-given inclination of the redeemed is to grow in the pursuit of knowledge of God. It's expected. We're supposed to grow in the virtues listed here in this passage. Who are also who, which were also characterized by Christ, and this growth in our life also necessitates continually putting to death the old man in us. So again, the normal Christian life should be characterized by a steady and ever increasing growth 
in the virtues listed here in this passage that were characterized by Christ, the normal Christian life. We should never base our Christian life or our growth in it on us, on our innate abilities, on our popularity, or anything that has to do with us. We should not lift up our name to men, but we should lift up His name to men. Our growth in faith should reveal a diminishing of self and growth in Christ in exalting His name. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Paul. In Romans 8, he takes eight verses to identify himself. But by the time he writes Ephesians, he only uses half a sentence. Now there's multiple reasons for this for sure. It is possible, as I'm saying here that it is a possibility, that he's becoming increasingly more humble as he grows in faith, and he grow, as he grows in maturity. But it's also pretty likely that he's becoming more well-known in the area and doesn't feel the need to establish himself or introduce himself in this way to put his credentials out there. But he is for sure growing in maturity of faith. Another way to think about this is that we should spend so much time in the Word and studying the Scriptures, think about a boiling pot that it boils over into every area of our lives. If you look at verse 5, we should make every effort to boil over with the virtue and character of God so that we're actively known as someone who's godly. Is this how our wife sees us? Is this how your husband sees you as a wife? Is this how our children see us, boiling over with the virtue and character of God? When people talk about us, do they say, he's a godly man, she's a godly woman, or do they say something else? Let's think about this in terms of family worship. We could and should discuss in family worship what characterizes a godly person. How does a person bear the image of Christ? How can I have assurance of my faith? Does everybody know? Does your spouse know? Does your, do your children know that you're the kind of person that they can turn to to bear their weights? To hold them accountable? To turn them back from their sin? When people come to us, when our children come to us, asking for help with a temptation or sin, they want to be told to turn back. They want to be told to repent. And we must not as parents, as friends, as co-workers, gloss over that or justify it in any way, shape, or form. But the people around us, when they come to us, asking for help, they also need to know when they don't repent, when they struggle with repentance, that we'll still be there for them, that our love for them, that our care for them is not based on their obedience to the Word of God, but that we love them because Christ loved us. So there's a list of several virtues listed out here, starting in verse 5 and going towards the end. Verse 5 says, supplement your virtue with knowledge. 
So as I said, it's our moral obligation as a follower of Christ to be growing in our knowledge. To be growing in intelligence. Intelligence about what? Any suggestions? Anything else? The scriptures, history, the historical church, mighty women and men of faith, what they did, what they said, culture. We're talking about the cultural mandate. Understanding what's going on in the culture, being informed about what's going on in the culture is necessary for us to be able to speak to the culture. Local affairs, concerns, especially those pertaining to us here in the church, personally and as a body. Studying and understanding all of these things will necessarily spill over into our family worship time, helping us teach and train our children so that they're not doomed to repeat the sins of the fathers in the past. As we discussed a few weeks ago, if you'll remember, it only took one generation after the people that Joshua led to forget the Lord. Just one generation. In verse 6, it lists the virtue of self-control. So this is the way we interact with things or with people. The way we see others is either God's creation or something else. Are we morally upright? Is it morally defined... Are we defined by, uh, or is our morality rather defined by God's word or by culture? We must examine ourselves. We must ask are we led and controlled by the culture, by immorality, by things, or by people? Are we driven by food, by what we drink? Are we driven and controlled by social media? Are we driven and controlled by what we read or hear in the news? Are we driven and controlled by culture? Or are, as John said several weeks ago, are we affecting and redeeming the culture for Christ? Is it affecting us or are we affecting it? This aspect of self-control is not just negative, um, but it's a positive one. Are we disciplined? When put to the test, do we do the right thing? When under pressure, do we do the right thing? Do we react in a godly way? Can we restrain temptation? Can we restrain the temptation to react sinfully? Think about David's reaction in the story of David and Goliath. In contrast to everyone else's reaction, David exemplifies self-control. In the midst of that temptation, he didn't run away in fear. He boldly stood on the promises of God in that situation. He prevailed. He had self-control in the midst of fear. All of these character traits can be good points of discussion during family worship. They can be used to encourage our children to remain steadfast to be faithful during difficult times where peers are pressuring them to compromise on their character or compromise on morality. 
This can all spill over and be a part of family worship. Let's look at steadfastness. Steadfastness is the call to to persevere, the call to be steadfast. And it's a very frequent calling in the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, God has taught His people that following Him for a lifetime is not going to be easy. It's going to take great steadfastness to do it. When we give our children a difficult task, what is their usual response, especially small children? Can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It'll take too long. What about Johnny? Let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let somebody else do it. We must teach our children how to be steadfast. What about godliness? It's the next character trait. Godliness is a way of saying that a life is marked by holiness. The way I like to think about holiness, when you say the word holy, you can spell it two different ways, H-O-L-Y or W-H-O-L-L-Y. To be holy is to be W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different than the world. To be completely different from the world. What about brotherly affection? Love for those in our family, love for our friends, love for our coworkers, love for those in the church, love for those outside the church. Having a right love for the people around us will drive us into a deeper desire to study the scriptures, to emulate the characteristics of God so that we can teach and model them back to these people in our lives, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our church family, to the lost. This love, this idea of love, what he's talking about here, love is the primary vehicle God has designed to carry the gospel to the lost. A love for them. A love for the world. As parents, as brothers, as sisters, in a family, we must model this love to one another. And then the last virtue, love, agape love, This is the key to being able to exercise it all. This concept of love permeates all of Scripture. Think about how many times you you see the word loved used in Scripture. For God so loved the world. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. All of these characteristics can be discussed and applied in family worship. We can lead and teach our children to be more patient and more kind. To be more patient and kind with their family. To be more patient and kind with their siblings. We can teach them what it is to be selfless and to not envy. We can explain why and how boasting is sinful. We can explain to them that insisting on their own way is a sin. 
One of the issues is that each and every one of us, young and old in this room, struggles with exemplifying these characteristics in our own lives on a daily basis. We struggle. That's why it's so important, as I said earlier, that we must intentionally practice them and teach them to our children as each moment arises in their lives. And if they don't see us living these things out, and if they don't see us failing to live these things out, and then repenting and pushing forward again after failure, it won't matter what we've taught them. They won't trust it. They won't trust the Lord and they won't trust us if we're being hypocrites. If our siblings don't see us living these things out and repenting when we don't, we'll be a stumbling block to them. If our co-workers don't see us, if our friends don't see us, if the world doesn't see us, we will be a stumbling block. What is one of the biggest condemnations of believers that the world leverages against Christians today? They're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You say one thing, you act another way. You say that God commands us to love, but I see how unloving you are. I see how you live one way on Sunday, but a very different way on Monday through Saturday. We must make sure that we're exemplifying godly character and godly repentance so that others, all of these that we've been listing, will be strengthened and even drawn to the Lord by the way we act and treat each other. Remember that frame we discussed earlier that presented the picture. We're the frame to the picture of Christ that people see at home and out in the world. We're the frame. Are we being a frame that distracts from the beauty of Christ? Are we being a frame that covers up part of the picture? Is the glass in our frame so dirty that others cannot even tell what's behind the glass? Or are we being a frame that brings attention to the beauty of Christ? Are we being a frame that when our children see it, when our brothers and sisters see it, when our parents see it, our grandparents see it, our co-workers and the lost see it, they see Christ. Let's let our all-consuming effort and goal as parents, as siblings, as children, be to build and maintain a godly and Christ-honoring home for our good and for His glory. Let's let that be our effort and our goal. Anybody have anything they want to say? Questions? All right. Let's pray.